Now, if we turn to John 17 tonight, I'm going to read, first of all, uh, the passage that we're going to look at in John 17, and that's from verse 11 down as far as verse 16. If I read through it, first of all, uh, and then we'll look at some of the content of that. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. It's very understandable that the disciples would be anxious and somewhat puzzled indeed uh, about the way in which Christ was going to leave them as he was teaching them through these chapters, even of the necessity of his leaving of them. We know something of what that might have felt like ourselves. Most of us have had to uh, face the problem and the difficulty and the pain of loved ones um, being taken from us by death and into eternity and uh, the prospect of having them no longer with us for all that they were doing for us, no longer hearing their voice and all, all the difficulty that is involved in that. And be something like that for the disciples. The, Jesus had been with them these years. He'd been teaching them. They'd seen his miracles. They, were, they appreciated his presence. They depended on him for so many things. And now he was saying to them, I'm no longer going to be with you, but it's actually going to be better for you because I am going to the Father and I'm going to send the helper or the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's really what's in the background and sometimes at the forefront, foreground of chapters 13 to, eight, 13 to 16. Um, all the way through these chapters, you can see how the prospect of Jesus not being with them is something that he wants to actually bring them into and teach them. For example, chapter 14 at verses 25 to 27, if we just pick a couple of those very well-known um, verses, I'm sure, chapter 14, verse uh, 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you, do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So there is Jesus specifically addressing uh, the issue of his leaving and how that's uh, in fact going to lead to the Spirit coming and uh, also that their peace, that, that his peace will be something that they will appreciate and, and experience. You have the same in chapter uh, 16 and verses 5 to 7. Um, what do you find there? That uh, now I am going, he says, to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Uh, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And at this stage, of course, they couldn't appreciate, as they would later after his resurrection especially, they couldn't appreciate how it, how it could possibly be the case that his physical absence was actually going to be 
in a sense, a better situation for them than uh, what he was now saying would be the case. And that, um, uh, Jesus actually no longer being with them, is very much also in his mind in this prayer that the disciples be kept. You can see that that's really one of the strings that runs through these verses in this passage. And uh, three or four times you find it, uh, the Lord saying, keep them, keep them in your name, keep them in, I have kept them in your name, I guarded them, and then fourthly, keep them from the evil one. Um, so the matter of them being kept, kept by God the Father as he's praying to them here, is something that is really keyed in very closely to the fact that he is not physically going to be with them, and that they're going to face a situation in the world entirely new, when they will ultimately take the gospel and take the message of Jesus out into that hostile world that's just waiting for them outside that upper room. And so I wanted tonight just to look at this uh, matter of uh, Christ's prayer for the keeping of the disciples and how that translates into uh, or continues into our understanding of Christ keeping ourselves and our need of that. Keep them, he says, in your name. And then he says, says, secondly, keep them from the evil one. Keep them in your name and keep them from the evil one. Let's look at the first of those first of all. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Holy Father is a description of God or um, a title given to God here only in the New Testament. You find that, that um, term used for God. It's not a legitimate name for the Pope, although historically the Pope has given himself the name of Holy Father, and that's how he still is addressed to this day. There's only one Holy Father, and that is God the Father. And the fact that this is used here specifically by Jesus to address his Father really puts a guard on that name, a name that belongs to God alone. And the fact that he's Joining these two words, Holy and Father, together in his address to the Father reminds us of, of two things, really, in that. I'm just going to mention them. Um, you, they're known to you anyway. The, the title, the name Holy Father, first of all, in the sense of being a holy father, he being a holy father, reminds us and teaches of the awesome distance between ourselves and God, between even the holiest human being on earth and God the Father, and you could say, in a sense, the holiest human being in heaven, apart from Jesus himself, um, the distance still between a created being and God, the Holy Father. And it's an awesome distance, a distance that we come to realize as we confess our sin to him, and as the Bible brings his holiness to bear upon our understanding. That's the first thing in Holy Father, but it's the word Father as well, because as well as the awesome distance between ourselves and God, there is also wonderfully a familial closeness. He is distant in his holiness from us, but he is so close to us in the familial sense, in the fatherly sense, in the sense in which he is indeed a spiritual father to his people. So both of these issues are combined in this address uh, by Jesus as he addresses the Father and says, Holy Father, keep them. And then he says, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now, we've seen already, uh, verse, six, uh, verse 6 especially, uh, that the name of God is mentioned, the name of the Father. I have manifested your name to the people 
whom you gave me out of the world. And we saw that the name of God in that context means the revealed character of God. And what Jesus is saying here in the prayer is, you have given this to me, your name. Uh, by which he means, I think, that the, the character of God the Father has actually come to be revealed to the world and to the disciples especially through Jesus and in Jesus himself. Remember in chapter 14, and the question that was addressed to him, um, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. These are amazing words. When we see Jesus and appreciate uh, the truth as it is in Jesus, we're actually looking at the character of God and God the Father, as well as God the Son. And when he's saying here, keep them in your name, well, there's a difference of opinion um, in commentaries of, uh, as to whether this should be translated, keep them through or by your name, or here, keep them in your name. Um, they're very close together in, in meaning anyway. Uh, keeping them through your name would be equivalent to keep them in your power, the power of your character, the power of your divine nature, your divine being. But here it's translated, keep them in your name, which I think is probably the best way of translating the, the, the same word. In other words, keep them in your name means something like, Father, keep them faithful within your name, within the truth of your name as I have revealed it, the truth of God as that has been revealed uh, in Jesus. And all aspects of that truth are what the Son, God, the Son of God wants his people to be kept within, and for them to be kept within the truth, within the boundaries of God's truth, we and they require the keeping of God. We, we require the, the ability, the keeping, the, 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 the power of God himself to keep us within the truth and to keep us from actually straying outside of that. And I think that's why uh, it's the best way of, of taking the meaning of that, especially in relation to what follows on from that, where he says, uh, I guarded them uh, and uh, I guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, when he's saying I guarded them, it's actually a different word to the word keep, but very similar in meaning. Um, the guardianship is the same really in a sense of um, looking after or keeping secure um, and not uh, not actually um, giving them to stray beyond the boundaries of the truth itself. And that's why he's saying, I guarded them while I was with them. I guarded them and none of them has been lost. In other words, none of those that are within his guardianship are lost or ever will be lost. They are within the guardianship of Jesus. They are within the guardianship of the Father. He's praying here the Father will keep them in a similar manner to which he has guarded them while, they, while he was with them in this world. None of them has fallen away and been lost. Then it says, except the son of destruction, or the old uh, way of it is the, the old translation, the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I don't particularly like the word except in that context in the, in the uh, ESV. The older translation has but, uh, 
Uh, so it runs, uh, not one of them is lost, but the son of perdition, son of destruction. And I think the best way is to take it as, a, as, as the word but, because the word except gives you the impression that um, the uh, guarding of Jesus has been successful apart from this one individual. I have guarded them. None of them is lost except the son of destruction. Whereas when you take it in the word uh, with the word but, it runs something like this. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, but the son of destruction has been lost, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the son of destruction, as you well know, is Judas Iscariot. That's the name that Christ gave to him here. And it's like the description of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. So what Jesus is referring to really in a sense is that this Judas, this Judas Iscariot, uh, by whose evil action Jesus came to be, betra came to be betrayed into the hands of uh, those who then ultimately came to crucify him. Um, the, the son of destruction, the son of perdition really shows that the spirit of Judas is the same in kind. He has a kinship of spirit with the devil. Uh, his, his actions served at that stage the purposes of the devil in actually bringing Jesus and betraying him to the authorities. But, you see, he's saying that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that powerfully shows us that the reason that Judas is the son of destruction is not because of any failure in the guarding of Jesus, in the ability of Jesus to keep his people. Go back again to the way that uh, we've, uh, we, we, we've translated that. It's really uh, evident from that where you say, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, the name you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, but the son of destruction has been lost so that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see, Judas's betrayal of Jesus and Judas's evil actions did not arise out of any fault with God, any fault with Jesus's ability to keep his disciples. It arose out of his own choice. He did not betray Jesus because he was chosen by God to do so and had no option. He had his own will. He had his own mind. He had his own thoughts. He had his privileges along with Jesus' disciples. He had all of that for these years that he was with them. And yet at the end of the day, he was never a proper disciple spiritually. He was never in love with Christ. He never committed his life to Jesus. He was the son of perdition. He chose to betray him. He took up kinship of spirit with the devil. He served his purposes at that point. And so you see, that's such a wonderful way of guarding uh, Jesus' own ability as he guards his disciples. So when you look at this, what he's saying is that this is now what he's praying for. Holy Father, you who are holy perfectly, you are father to your children. Keep them in your name. Keep them in the boundaries of that truth that's revealed as your name through me that you have given to me, even as uh, uh, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. And I guarded them, 
and not one of them has been lost, but the son of destruction was lost, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he's asking the father and praying that his disciples will be kept in his name. And that's something that applies to ourselves this evening as well, that we come under um, the provisions of Christ's intercession in principle. This is still what is being prayed for. Uh, this is what is being prayed for all of those who trust in Christ as their savior. They come into the provisions of this magnificent intercession um, where there's an ongoing keeping of them, an ongoing um, presentation by Jesus of himself in heaven as the ground for his intercession for the keeping of his people. That's what's really surrounding you and I tonight in the many difficulties that we face, the many challenges, and as we'll see, the many ways in which our relationship with the world requires the keeping of of God of us within the boundaries of his truth. So he's saying, firstly, keep them in your name. And secondly, he's saying, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. Uh, he goes on to say that he has given them his word, verse 14, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Well, your word, as he says there to, to the Father, is the teaching that Jesus was giving, uh, as well as the revelation in his own person, as that had come from the Father. He had come from the Father. His teaching that was from the Father. This was the word of the Father to his people, expanding on everything that had gone before. And because Jesus had given this word to his disciples, the world has hated them. A totally contrasting, a totally contrasting structures, if you like, or substances, or contrast of natures between the disciples and indeed all of God's born again people and the world. Because we saw earlier, the world really means in John what is against God, that human entity, that, that organized human opposition to God, that is the world. And contrary to that, them here, the disciples, extending that into all of those who have come to be taken out of the world and are now living by faith in Christ, that's the opposite of the world. That's what contrasts. And the world and God's people are completely opposite in their values, in their outlook, in their aspirations, in their lifestyles. And so it's inevitable that you have what Jesus has here. What he's mentioning is the hatred of the world towards uh, those people who have come to be taken out of the world and given to Jesus and live now for him. It's inevitable when you get two mutually opposed worlds, if you like, or the world and God's people that you have a mutual conflict. And you, of course, know that yourselves. The moment you begin to follow Jesus, you're aware of the world's opposition. You're aware that there's a power there, that there's an influence there, that there's an entity there that doesn't like what you're doing, that doesn't like what you're saying, that doesn't like what you're suggesting, that doesn't care for your witness, that would like you to be different, that would like you to go back to the world the way things were. 
And even if it's not such an out and out hatred as results in physical persecution, though that is often the case, it's still very ob obvious that the world in its movements and its conclusions and its actions are acting against God's people because they are essentially, the world is essentially anti-God. And what is anti-God is by nature and by definition against what is pro-God, what is actually living for God and for God's glory. But you see what he's saying to them? What he's saying, and this is of course in the audience of the disciples, very important that we realize the disciples are listening to all of this. They're not asleep. They're not somewhere else as Jesus is praying. He's saying this, he's praying this in their presence. And they would look back undoubtedly over in years to come, they would look back to this really special moment when they heard Jesus um, in this prayer addressing the Father in these terms. And what he is saying is the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And by the evil one, undoubtedly he means the devil. We could take it in a sense as generic evil or evil in general, but it's more specific, I think, than that, just as it's translated here, take them, uh, that you keep them from the evil one. They will meet with the devil in terms of his mind, his, his strategies, his methods. They will meet with that as they go into the world with the gospel. That's what they're going to be confronting. That's what's going to try always to undo what they're doing. And here you need to notice the language of verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That is why they need the keeping of the Father, because they've been sent into the hostile world with the message of the gospel to bring Jesus to the world. And in that world, they're going to be hated and opposed. And therefore he's praying, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, because that would be contrary to the purpose why Jesus sent them into the world. They're there on a mission, as he was on a mission from the Father, in verse 18. So they are on a mission from Jesus, a mission uh, that, that has the gospel at its center. Uh, and in that, he's saying, I don't say, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I do pray that you keep them from the evil one. So the, we must really never withdraw from the world in the sense in which we're taking it tonight. Uh, withdrawing from the world, of course, to be seen to be different to it's a different concept, but withdrawing from the world so as not actively to be serving God in it, it's not really an option for us. And the solution to the world's hatred is not by opting out or anything other than the Father's protection. That's where the answer to the opposition and the hatred of the world is, that you keep them from the evil one. Uh, one of the best commentaries um, on, on the Gospel of John is by the American theologian Don Carson. And uh, in regard to this, uh, I thought his words were just excellent, and this is what he says. The followers of Jesus 
are permitted neither the luxury of compromise with a world that is intrinsically evil and under the devil's power, nor the safety of disengagement. If the Christian pilgrimage is inherently perilous, the safety that only God himself can provide is assured, as certainly as the prayers of God's own dear son will be answered. I think that's a magnificent comment on this part of, of the passage. He's saying there were not permitted the luxury either of compromising with a world that is intrinsically evil and under the devil's power, nor are we permitted the safety of disengaging ourselves from, from that world and witnessing to it. And because uh, the pilgrimage we're on, including our service in the gospel, is inherently perilous, the safety that only God himself can provide is assured us, as certainly as the prayers of God's own dear son will be answered. And that's such an assuring word for you and for me tonight. Whatever your form of witness is, wherever it is you're serving God, uh, however you're taking uh, Jesus and the message of Jesus and the standard of Jesus, to the world, whether it's in your own home or in your neighborhood or uh, involved in something in the church um, now, or especially in the past when we were able to do this more fully. It doesn't really matter what kind of involvement it is in the service of God, in uh, the mission that he's given us to go to the world with the gospel, to witness to him as the savior. We are absolutely assured of God's protective care doesn't mean we will never die in his service, um, that uh, we will never have such opposition as may even put us to death, as happens in other parts of the world frequently. But it does mean that uh, we are assured of the safety that within God's own truth and within God's own salvation, no one is able to breach. The devil has no access to break that unity that we have with God and with his son. Now I want to finish by uh, just picking up two uh, points. That is, as well as the prayer that God will keep, that uh, the Father will keep them in his name, and the prayer that the Father will keep them from the evil one. Through the passage, there is a dual purpose, uh, or two particular purposes, that Jesus has in mind in these prayers. You could say that this is Christ's own practical application of these wonderful theological facts that he's setting out for us. And the two um, uh, aspects of that purpose or the dual purposes, first of all, that they may be one, he says in verse 11, be that they may be one as we are one. This is what he's saying. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. In other words, this is really so that the outcome of what he's, he's praying for in the keeping of God the Father, the outcome will be unity for God's people, for those who live faithfully to Christ. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's a very deep thing uh, that our unity as Christians in a spiritual body that we make up is patterned on the unity within the Trinity itself. 
The pattern of unity is nothing less than the unity that you find in the depths of God's own being. The unity of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit together. In other words, when he's saying here that they may be one, even as we are one, there are two things at least that come into that. You could widen this out yourselves. But it includes, firstly, a unity in love. Because that's one of the things that characterizes the Godhead, God himself as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Perfect love as that is shared as that is um, engaged in between the persons of the Trinity. The love that God is, that God is within himself between each of these persons, and especially John and Jesus in John, uh, John's uh, gospel mentions the father and son relationship as one of, of love mutually between them. So there's a unity in love there, and that's the pattern for the unity he's praying for here, that they, that's us, Christians, may be one, that we will have that unity in love. And it's, it stands to reason that without love there can't be unity, either inwardly or even an organized outward unity. But the second aspect of, of that uh, oneness is a unity of purpose. There is absolutely no contradiction between the purpose that God the Father has in sending his Son into the world and the purpose that is in the Son's ministry, in the Son's mind, as he's come to fulfill that mission and that ministry. There's no conflict between um, the will of the Son and the will of the Father, between the aim and the purpose of the Father in our salvation. And so our unity as well, as it's patterned on that, as it's a result of what Jesus is praying for uh, through uh, from the keeping power of God, that we be kept so that we will have that unity of purpose. See, that goes back to being within the parameters, the boundaries of God's truth. It's when we start straying outside of that. And, and I don't want to give the impression we don't have within um, God's truth the facility of liberty of conscience. That's an area that we're not going to go into, but it's important to mention it. But the unity of purpose is very much to do with remaining within the, 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 the boundaries of God's own truth. In other words, we are not serving God's purpose, or even uh, we could say we're in conflict with Christ's prayer if we were to say that we're still going to be united, but we're now not going to believe in a physical resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's going outside of the boundaries of God's truth, as it is in Christ. And so here he is praying that they may be one, even as we are one, bound together in a unity of love and in a unity of purpose. And there's one other uh, matter. The dual purpose is not just unity, but also, secondly, joy. Look at verse 13, where he's saying... Um, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, and I've guarded them. Not one of them is lost, but now I'm coming to you. And these things, and I think he means by all of what he's been saying in these previous chapters as well, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, very briefly, if you go back to chapter 15, and you see verses 10 
to 11. Um, it gives us a key, I think, into what's meant here in chapter 17. Um, verse 10 of chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. In other words, that's keeping within the boundaries of God's truth. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, Jesus is tying together his own relationship with the Father in obedience, love, and truth, and the way in which his people are to be bound to the Father and to himself in obedience, love, and truth. And the outcome of that is joy. It's a complete mistake on the part of the world to say, if you are obedient to Christ and live within the boundaries of his truth and your concern among others and a main concern, you might say, is to be obedient to Christ and to your father, you're bound to have a joyless life. You know that that's not true. It wasn't true for Jesus and it's not true for his disciples. Indeed, it's the very opposite. There is no joy like knowing the joy that God gives us as we live in obedience to himself and to, to the Savior, to Jesus, and in the way that we love him, including the keeping of his commandments, as far as that's possible for us. So what he's saying is, as it was for Jesus, so it is to be for us, and this is, this is what he's praying for. This is one of the outcomes of his prayer, that God will keep his people so that they will experience the joy that comes from obedience and love, and that that will be fulfilled in themselves. Now, there's a lot more in that passage that I haven't had time uh, to touch on this evening. I've touched on enough, and there's a lot of that that you can uh, fill out or discuss again uh, for yourselves. But here are the two, uh, here is the, the one, the main thing that he's saying, that he's praying for, the Father's keeping of his people. And he's keeping them in relation to the truth that is revealed in Jesus, keeping them within the boundaries of the truth, but he's keeping them also from the evil one as they go out with that truth into a hostile world. We pray God will again bless to us uh, this part of his word. One, two,